Hello again and welcome to episode 18 of the Three Lions podcast. My name's Russell Osborne. If you went to Amsterdam, hope you got back safely and have sobered up. Decent few days, wasn't it? Of you were catching up with mates, enjoying the Dutch hospitality or enjoying the <clears throat> sights. That journey though, from landing at Skipwell, I swear I can get out of my seat at Wembley at full time, join the queue to Wembley Central and get to Liverpool Street by the time that plane got to the terminal. Anyway, we've got a lot to get through. There's been plenty of games played in March at all levels. We've got your reaction to them and we speak to Gary Jordan who takes us back to 1982. England recorded their first win over the Netherlands since 1996 with a second-half goal from Manchester United's Jesse Lingard. Not the best Dutch team we've ever seen, but with the players they have, I'm sure we're going to see them back at the top table very soon. Now, in the run-up to the game, both Ryan Bertrand and Jack Wilshere pulled out, so Gareth Southgate surprised many by mixing things about, putting Carl Walker on the right side of the back three alongside John Stones and Joe Gomez, stroke Harry Maguire, which seemed to work and would appear to be a good backup plan once Gary Cahill is back in the fold. Tottenham pair and Kieran Trippier and Danny Rose either side. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain joined Jordan Henderson in the midfield with Jesse Lingard. Raheem Sterling and Marcus Rashford. And between the sticks, Everton's Jordan Pickford. He has surely put himself in contention for that number one spot for Russia. Jordan Henderson, though, again, came in for some more criticism. Many observing the direction of his passes, which, which I have to agree with. Uh, I have to say, I think I prefer Eric Dyer in that position, just in front of the back three. I did read that Gareth Southgate is a big fan of Jesse Lingard, taking him through the under-21s, and apparently they've done really well together. And he had a good night, obviously got the only goal of the night. Let's take a listen to that. Here's Rose. Driven in towards Oxlade-Chamberlain. It's Jesse Lingard, and England lead! It's been coming. And an England performance full of promise has now got a goal to realise that promise. Well, it's certainly what they deserve as well. It's a really good break, good move. Spare men in midfield, Chamberlain. Lingard knows the system, he knows the wing-back. Rose is coming, and, and Rose just decides to put pull one back. The ball's spinning as well. He's done well, Lingard, to keep it down. He's just dragged it into the corner. Got to say, poor goalkeeper a little bit from Zoot, but it's something that England deserve. They deserve that goal with the way they've played. My other observations from the game, in general, not the best of games, was it? Holland, a little bit more physical than I'd anticipated. The Koeman effect, perhaps? We are clearly missing the presence of Harry Kane, someone you know who can make something out of nothing. A couple of times I thought Rashford could have been a little bit more selfish or thrown himself at a ball that came his way. He was denied a certain penalty in the second half, though, wasn't he? And those lights at the start of the game, can't say I'm keen on that. Wembley, if you uh, if you saw those or are thinking of it, no, please don't. My other bugbear, though, the booing of the Dutch national anthem. Don't get it. Unnecessary. The Dutch, they gave us the respect by letting us hear ours loud and clear, which, incidentally, was played by a full-on marching band. Loved that. And then there was a large contingent of our support who booed it. 
may not be the most exciting of tunes, but come on. Regarding the well-documented anti-social issues, I don't have a great deal to say that hasn't already been said, other than when I read or hear people saying these people won't stand a chance when the Russians get hold of them. Fact of the matter is, there will be very few of these kids we saw in Amsterdam in Russia. We've been allocated between two 2,800 tickets for our group games. Now there are approximately five to 6,000 of us in Amsterdam. Visas, fan ID, general costs and lack of caps will prevent them from going, along with their mums saying no. Don't get me wrong, I don't think the tournament will be without its issues, but it won't be caused by baseball-capped kids wandering about in groups singing 10 German bombers with a beer in hand. Sadly, that'll be happening in your local town centre, where our beleaguered police force will have to deal with it. Back to the game. Alan Shearer on Twitter said, A positive night for England and a good result, but against a very poor Dutch team. As I mentioned in the last podcast, I asked for your reaction, and you haven't disappointed. This is what you had to say. Um, This is Steve from Epping. My thoughts on the game from Friday night, I thought Holland... Although they're not the best side in the world, they still had a full crowd and they wanted to play well, but England didn't let them. I thought the England guys put in 100% effort, really impressed with guys like Sterling and Walker that they got bigger things coming up ahead with the league and the Champions League. Um, I thought it was really sort of top performance and, and I think Southgate has to be uh, sort of praised. He's, he's doing a good job and sort of quietly getting England solid and, and playing well, um, even though perhaps we don't have the star players out there. So uh, um, I'm not sure that England should still be sort of fifth favourites with the bookies, perhaps a little bit lower than that. But otherwise, I think, yeah, good performance and hopefully see a bit more of that coming up. Dom Smith, age 17, writer of EnglandFootball.org. The Holland game yesterday was really, really exciting for us. I thought Rashford, Ali, Lingard, Sterling, they're very similar players and sometimes in some teams that can be a real problem. But for England, I really don't think it is. I think it was a great performance. Again, solid at the back. Gareth Southgate said that a lot. But Jordan Henderson, he's, his, the number of passes which he completes that go forwards is not enough. He shouldn't be in the England team, let alone being captain. I'm not happy with that at all. Hi, this is Stephen, a big fan of the podcast. I so just thought I'd call in with um, thoughts on um, on the match the other night. So, mixed bag in, in real terms. Rashford denied a clear penalty, so it should have been two in my view. But odd tactics at the back. They work against a comparatively weak side. I'm not convinced they will in the summer. So, they're being reasonably well coached, I think, by Southgate and, and Steve Marcus. Um, but clearly, it's a long-term strategy, that, and I don't think they'll be given time, especially if the first results don't go their way. Watch the press come for them in the summer, faster than Boris went for Putin. Back at Wembley for the first time since November of last year on the following Tuesday to face Italy. Following the withdrawal of Ryan Bertrand and Jack Wilshere, Joe Gomez pulled out of the squad for this game. Jack Butland replaced Jordan Pickford in goal. Burnley's James Towoski made his debut at the back alongside John Stones and Carl Walker. In came Ashley Young, Eric Dyer and Jamie Vardy as changes to the starters against Holland. Italy featured some familiar names to the English audience. It was Immobile, who can't stop scoring for Lazio at the moment, who should have put England aside in the first five minutes, following mistakes by John Stones, who looked uneasy at times, didn't he? 
Raheem Sterling had a great game against Holland and he seems to have taken his City form into an England shirt of late. Early on in the game, threaded Jamie Vardy through after the ref played advantage to a challenge on him. Vardy shooting straight at the keeper. And a couple of minutes later, similar situation. Sterling is through again. This time he's fouled. Quick free kick by Lingard. And this time Vardy hits the target this time for his seventh England goal. Make sure that Italy keep the ball. And they play it into midfield. And again, Sterling wants to keep going. And uh, well, England do keep going. And the referee didn't blow. And Jamie Vardy... I thought England done well to get into the game, obviously against a better opposition than Holland. Imposed themselves too and finished the half well and then came out and started the second half in a similar vein. But like the Holland game, then followed a flood of substitutions to the point I thought Sven had come back to the technical area. The game then turned its head on 87 minutes when debutant James Towoski stepped on Chiesa's foot in the area. Now from where I was, row one, upper tier, opposite end of the ground, couldn't see a thing. Quick look at the highlights, seems very harsh. And it all goes very VAR, doesn't it? Which, to be honest, took far too long to sort out. Without the ref being mic'd up to the crowd, a la rugby, no one knows what's going on. There was a similar scenario in Paris last year when a French player was sent off. Took ages, didn't it? Now there's going to be uproar if VAR rears its head too often in Russia. Anyway, little Lorenzo Insagi and scored and the game is drawn. Perhaps at the end, fair result? Here's what Gareth Southgate and you thought about it. Well, um, it, it is what it is. Uh, we have to accept the, the ruling. Um, I think in this instance, my only observation would be that um, I don't think it's clear and obvious. So the, the two... Um, areas I think for improvement and I think it's you know in general is a is a, the right route to go if we I mean I'm I prefer referees decision is final that's my start point um, because I think it's sport and we shouldn't be talking about how much money it costs or money that's lost so I think it should be based on sport but if we're going to go with technology then um, I think it's the right thing to do um, for me the two areas are only clear and obvious, otherwise it's just opinion again. Uh, and as we move forward, a better way of communicating with the fans in the crowd. Uh, my name is Idris and I support Arsenal. And um, I'd say that Walsh should suck in the World Cup, definitely, because he is the engine of Arsenal and he should be the engine of England. Tonight, I think it's a poor, it's a poor Italy squad. We're not facing the strongest Italy squad at all. Um, very unorganised performance, I'd see right now. Um, Defensive-wise, very nervous at the back from John Stones. Um, and I'd also say that, um, yeah, he should. I don't think he should start at the World Cup. He's really going to be broken down by the top um, strikers of the world, like Cavani, um, Aguero, and Messi, of course. So, you know, let's, let's hope that he picks us up before the end of the season because. He is one of our only
Now, the Lionesses were in action at the start of March in the She Believes Cup over in America. 1st of March, England faced France in Columbus, Ohio. 4-1 win for the ladies. They opened up their three-game campaign and a first win for Phil Neville. Goals from Tony Duggan, Jill Scott, Jodie Taylor put England three up in the first half. Frank Kirby got another one quickly after after the restart before France pulled one back towards the end. France, though it has to be said, were poor and England capitalised on that. Both sides, they were well changed from the sides that met back in October when France grabbed a last-minute winner. A few days later, we played Germany in New York. 2-2 draw. England, we came from behind twice as we grabbed a point against Germany. It was a game that featured plenty of defensive mistakes and we went a goal down. Helen White in the right place at the right time as she deflected a ball in from a Farrell Williams long-range shot. Millie Bright was then in the wrong place as the ball pinged around the penalty area and eventually come in off her rooted heels to put the Germans ahead. And then with 20 minutes left, Birmingham City's Ellen White got her second with a long run beating the offside trap. And then Thursday the 8th of March, we faced the hosts America in Orlando. Another own goal. This was the difference between the two sides and it was this time goalkeeper Karen Bardsley as America went on to win the She Believes Cup. England finished in second place with four points and their best return in this tournament. I think it's fair to say America, well, they were the better team and are rightly top of the FIFA rankings. But England pushed them in this tournament. And without the likes of Jordan Nobbs, Steph Houghton and Karen Carney, who all pulled out before the tournament started. Phil Neville, of course, it was his first games as England manager, spoke to the BBC after the America game, said, I've learnt a lot about my players. The tournament has been a fantastic experience and every single one of my players can be proud of their performances. Asked about the own goals, they said, if we can eradicate simple errors, then we can go toe-to-toe with the best in the world. And on the back of these results, the Lionesses have moved up to second in the FIFA rankings, their highest ever position. Of course, behind America, so well done to the ladies. They're next in action, 6th of April, against Wales in a World Cup qualifier. That's down at Southampton. Um, at the St Mary's Stadium and then they're away to Bosnia and Herzegovina on the 10th. Now stick with us, we've got that Gary Jordan interview coming up. But first, we've heard about the seniors and the lionesses. There have been plenty of other England games in March that you may not have been aware of. I think it's time we give them the recognition they deserve. We may need a vidi printer sound for this though. If you don't know what the vidi printer is, maybe ask your dad. Uh, so other results that may be of interest, let's start with the under-18s. 21st of March, England 4, Qatar nearly played at St George's Park. Two goals from Stephen Walker from Middlesbrough. Manchester City's uh, Ian Pavida Acampo uh, got one and there was an own goal thrown in there for good measure. 23rd of March, 
England 2, Argentina 1 is always a result that sounds good. That was played at uh, the City of Manchester Stadium. Pavida Acampo again getting a goal and another own goal. And this was against a mixed age side from Argentina. So well done to the boys there. 26th of March, England 2, Belarus 1 played again at St George's Park. Uh, and again a goal from Pavida Acampo. And also one from Callum Hudson-Odoi from Chelsea. We move on to the under-19s. Now, this was the elite qualifying for the European Under-19 Championships. Now, all these games were played in Macedonia. 21st of March, Hungary 1, England 4. Despite going a goal down, four second-half goals from Mason Mount. He's currently on loan from Chelsea to Vitesse Arnhem. Uh, he got one goal. Arsenal's Reese Nelson got two. And Dortmund's Jaden Sancho got the fourth one for England. 24th of March, England 3, Latvia nil. Two goals from Mason Mount and Arsenal's Eddie Nketia got a goal there. And then, despite already qualifying from the elite group top, uh, England faced the hosts Macedonia but went down two goals to nil. But the result didn't matter because they are through. We'll be talking more, I'm sure, in due course um, about the Under-19 Championships in a few podcast time. The Under-20s played Poland away on the 22nd of March. A late goal from Aston Villa's Keenan Davis was enough for the under-20s. In front of nearly 14,000 in Poland, and England were also down to 10 men with uh, 15 minutes to go there. They came back to Manchester City's Academy Stadium on the 27th of March to face Portugal, running out 3-0 winners. Benfica's Chris Willett getting a goal, another one for Keenan Davis, and captain Asaya Suleiman from Grimsby getting the three goals there. Moving on to the under-21s, in a Cyril Regis international, goals from Demire Gray of Leicester, Jake Clark Salto, who's currently at Sunderland on loan from Chelsea, put England 2-0 up before Romania pulled one back. So they finished England 2, Romania 1. And on the 27th of March, same night that we were playing Italy at home, the under-21s were playing at Bramall Lane, uh, home of Sheffield United, in a Euro qualifier. Everton's Dominic Calvert-Lewin, we've heard that name before, haven't we? Uh, first half goal before Ukraine equalised with seven minutes left. Then another familiar name, Liverpool's Dominic Solanke with two minutes left, got the winner. Now a couple of podcasts ago, we spoke about the England blind team. They were playing in the Blind Football World Grand Prix in Tokyo in Japan. Well done to these guys. They played over the weekend of the 23rd and 25th of March. They finished top of their group, beating Turkey 4-1 and Japan 2-1. Then they met Argentina in the final. They drew 0-0, but sadly lost out on penalty kicks. Now, other results that may be of interest, whilst we were playing Holland and Italy, our World Cup opponents were also in international action. Tunisia beat Iran 1-0, and then they uh, they also beat Costa Rica 1-0. Uh, Costa Rica, who incidentally beat Scotland again. <laughs> Belgium 4, Saudi Arabia 0. Denmark 1, Panama 0. Uh, and then Panama took a bit of a hiding in Switzerland, losing 6 0. The 
So now the World Cup is only a few months away, but we're going to go back 36 years, in fact, to 1982 and Spain. Of course, qualification of late has been fairly easy for England. Back then, maybe not so. Fortunately, though, it's all been documented in a book called Out of the Shadows, the story of the 1982 England World Cup team. And its author, Gary Jordan, has joined me on the line to speak about it. Gary. Hello. Thanks for joining us. The book, um, I've got it here with me. I'm, uh, I'm halfway through it and enjoying it so far. I'm up to the, um, up to the pictures in the middle. So, um, yeah, it's good. And, and to, from my point of view, this is a, a learning curve for me because I was, I was four at this time, 1982. So it's uh, all new to me, as it were. Okay. You didn't go then? I wasn't there. No, I was only 11 myself. So I was rushing home from school every day to catch the, uh, catch the games. So where, where did the interest come from? Um, basically, fr- from that, um, it was the first World Cup I, I really remember actually watching on TV live um, and just seeing all, all the pictures and all the colours and everything. It's just like, hey, you know, it's, it's, this is big. Because obviously, when you've watched um, FA Cup finals, and that, that's the biggest thing um, growing up. And then actually to see the World Cup um, in all its glorious colour and drama and excitement that it, that it brings, um, it was something that stuck with me. Um, obviously, going you know, beyond that, it was 86, had all, all, the, all the drama as well for England, and 90. So it sort of had that appeal going, going through, going through um, the World Cups afterwards. But 82 was the one that stuck out because it was the real first one. A lot of people do say um, with World Cups, it is the, the colour brings it to life um, my first world cup that i really remember was 1990 um, and that the color of the just just the whole environment um, and on the telly being brought into your front room um, was one of those things that just hooks you wasn't it yeah, uh, yeah i mean obviously um with, with, with the pictures back then it wasn't obviously you know beams as, as crystal clear as it is now there was no hd things like that so everything was a bit grainy you had, you had the commentators that was a bit sort of tinny in the sound and that just add, adds to it as well i feel the book obviously concentrates on the 82 world cup but the pretty much where i'm up to at the moment is the or I've, they've just finished the qualification period so there's there must have been a lot of research done into this book yeah, I went back. Obviously, as you've read part of it as well, um, I started back in the in, in the 1970 World Cup um, because I felt obviously to get a real feel of how far England had fallen and obviously then come back to to 82, the first World Cup for uh, 12 years. Um, I felt it needed that backstory. So obviously, going back to the 1970 World Cup and the quarterfinal and going out there and obviously going through the Revy era and how that worked or didn't work so to speak and how that panned out and obviously with Greenwood coming on board and trying to sail, sail the ship again and well as, as, you, as you've read and obviously people will, will know if they know a bit of the history as well is the fact that the qualification wasn't a foregone conclusion even though we were drawn in what was seemingly a, 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 an easy group at the time but they made very heavy work of it indeed. They did didn't they? Let's just remind listeners of that qualification group which featured Norway, Switzerland, um, Hungary and Romania. That was right. And I mean, the media, they made a big deal out of, of that saying we would qualify, wouldn't they? Yep. Yep, for sure. Obviously, Norway and Switzerland were seen as uh, the minnows. All, all the teams should, should get points off those relatively easily. Um, Romania, 
was sort of so-so. Hungary were the team that was the, the real challenge. Um, so it seemed if we got points off those in, in, in those games, we'd be okay. Um, and in fact, we did get points off off, off Hungary quite quite easily. Um, it was the other teams that we really struggled against, and surprisingly, and obviously, famously, um, the, the the loss to Norway um, with, with the commentator and his um, famous rant at the end. Um, that's the one that sticks out most, obviously, in, in the qualification period. Lord Nelson, Lord Davybrook, Sir Winston Churchill, Sir Anthony Eden, Clement Attlee, Henry Cooper, Lady Diana, yes, of them all the summon, yes, of them all the summon, Maggie Thatcher, can you hear me? Maggie Thatcher, your boys took a hell of a beating, your boys took a hell of a beating. Yeah, I mean, the... The final Group 4 table just shows how close it was that Hungary finished on that um, group top with 10 points, England with 9, Romania with 8, Switzerland with 7 and Norway with 6. That It really was a close group, wasn't it? It was, it was. And there was one point um, where England had to sit and wait until the final game to see if results fell, fell their way. Um, and luckily, I think it was... Um, Switzerland drew with Hungary and I think that allowed us in a little bit um, but the shock team was Norway they 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 took points off of off teams that they didn't expect to obviously beating us and they they, they they grabbed a point elsewhere and yeah it was it was topsy-turvy Norway themselves actually had a chance with two or three games left if they if they um, continued their their run they could have qualified um, luckily it was the top two that went straight through and it went down to the final game um, at home, luckily. Um, didn't have to travel away for it um, in November. And uh, it was a certain Paul Mariner that got the winning goal to send us uh, off to Spain. Alden Martin up with the goalkeeper. This is set up looking. Oh, there's a chance there to go. And England are back in the World Cup finals for the first time since 1970. And Kevin Keegan won't mind the bang in the mouth because he's led England out of the wilderness now. And at last, we've got something to bite on. England's World Cup hopes look dead and buried in September. But here we are in November and we've qualified at last. Indeed, we've actually qualified for the first time since 1962 no wonder the flags are unfurled and Wembley rejoices and Ron Greenwood who's had to withstand some biting criticism in his spell as the England manager has done what he promised to do and taken England to the World Cup finals I mean the, the fact it was so tight um, Ron Greenwood I mean I don't know if, if he got itchy feet, if that would be the right way to say about it. But but he offered his resignation, didn't he? He did indeed. Um, after after a defeat where they went away to, I think it was Switzerland and uh, Hungary, after they lost to Switzerland, um, he decided that that, that was it. Um, they obviously weren't out, out, of the, out of the tournament then. 
but the team on on the plane when they when they caught wind of it rallied round, had words of him, and managed to persuade him to carry on. And he actually actually had to cancel the press conference that was arranged to, to announce that he was actually leaving the job. Um, so he had to cancel that, and on he went. Because the the players weren't aware of what he was saying that all this. The, the press conference that was announced or was going to be announced, the players weren't aware of that, were they? No, no, no they weren't. It was it was all it was all um, him and obviously with the team to, that set that up. So yeah, it, it was going to be a shock to the players, obviously getting off the plane and actually seeing that happen. But word, word did get out, out to them, and it was like the, the main the, the veteran players, so to speak, Keegan, uh, Brooking, Shilton, uh, Mick Mills, all rallied round and said. No gaffer, this isn't happening. So they managed to um, talk, talk him out of it, and uh, like I say, on, on they went, and they still had, had had a lot of work to do, and had to rely on other results going their way. But um, when it did fall their way, they they took the took advantage. Would you say that Ron Greenwood was an underrated manager? Would that be fair to say for uh, for, for England? For, but for England, um, yes. yes, I think that's a fair assumption. I don't think he gets the credit he fully deserves for turning it around, mainly because obviously with with what happened in his in, in his time in charge, he was very loyal to the old guard, didn't try many new things, hence why we probably did get him problems qualification wise. But because of that, because of sticking to his guns and, and his beliefs and obviously his background he had obviously coming through with, with West Ham, he stuck with it. Um, and, and, and it works out. And obviously, yes, he did go up. up, up, up. He did go um, out of the job after the World Cup. But he was the man responsible for, for bringing us back from from nowhere. I mean, obviously, the fact that with with the, with the Don Riviera was a complete shambles. We hadn't qualified for two World Cups, and he was the man responsible for bringing us back. So, yeah, in, in that respect, he, he he is underrated. You mentioned Paul Mariner as well. He got the uh, the final going in qualifying. He's, he actually done your your foreword, didn't he, for the book? Yeah, yep. Um, I was fortunate enough. Um, I was obviously looking for the right sort of person to set the tone um, in, in in the book. Um, I actually contacted him through um, Twitter, <laughs> good old social media. Um, he's actually working at the moment in America. He's a TV analyst for the New England uh, MLS team. So yeah, got got chatting. With him now, and he agreed to um, do do a small small piece for, for the forward, um, which was which, which I'm really grateful for because obviously having someone who was actually there at, at the time playing right at the heart of the heart of the team was was quite important to to, to get that. That's it's a good insight into the well, to to kickstart the book. Yeah, um, I'm regarding player wise this this sort of era, it was the start of career for or, or England players for Brian Robson, Glenn Hoddle, Kenny Sampson, but almost the end for the likes of Keegan, Mills, Francis and uh, and Brookin you mentioned as well, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean obviously Keegan and Brookin being the, the, the two star star power players that we had at the time and obviously uh were injured actually going into the finals and didn't play until the very last game, which obviously was was, was a gamble. But uh yeah, obviously you, you you had a good mix. You had a good mix of the the, the old guard and, and the new players. Um, and I think that's important. I mean, I think you see that in most most uh, World Cup squads that England have had. Um, it's good to have that element of of, of the old and the new. 
And obviously, going forward into into the summer, I think you'll see the same again. Although I think there's more news than the result now. <laughs> Glenn Hoddle, it actually sort of occurred to me that he he was brought in to this squad by um, Ron Greenwood. Although sometimes it felt maybe against his will. But Glenn Hoddle's England career didn't seem to last as long as maybe it should have. No. Um, the person that everyone wanted to have the job when Greenwood actually applied for it. And um, some would say he's obviously pretty much a, a, a shoo-in for, for, for the job. Um, but Brian Clough, um, who did get the job, actually said if he was in charge, he would have built the team around Hoddle when he had been a player. He actually would have had it on you know, the first name on the team sheet every time they played. Um, made his debut in 79, uh, scored on his debut, should have had way more caps than he did. Um, I don't I think he was out of favour with Greenwood and, and, and the way he played, but I think he was probably too cavalier for what, what Greenwood wanted. Um, he wanted his midfield to be um, not aggressive, but steady. Um, obviously, yeah. when you have Robson and Wilkins alongside him, it was it, it was a midfield that was not going to be too, too, too um, forward-thinking. Um, I mean, obviously, Robson scored a lot of goals and obviously went on to captain the country and was absolutely brilliant in his position. Um, but at the time, Hoddle was probably three, four, five years ahead of his time. And going forward, in, obviously, into 86, that's when he really hit hit his prime time for for England. Yeah. OK, so take me take me on to the, the part of the book that, that I haven't got to yet. Take us to Spain. Take us to Bilbao. Um, what, what are your... What did you come up with from the actual, the actual tournament? Well, from from from, from England's perspective, um, obviously got off to a flyer against France. Already the French marking up, man for man. Mariners on the near post. Butcher has pushed well forward. There's a header in there and a great chance for the first goal. And it's there, Brian Robson. Brian Robson, number sixteen, counts there in the first minute. What a start for England! Amazing. Um, the thing that I tried to key on as well was the fact that the heat was was absolutely unbearable. Um, so much so that the players were losing almost up to a stone in weight. I think Paul Mariner lost eleven pounds in in the first game. Um, going going into the research, looking to the thing that the actual kit, the Admiral kit, was was just far far too heavy. Um, obviously, you're going into an era where kits were starting to be designed and actually looked at from an actual player's perspective, um, as opposed to just a you know a, a cotton jersey that they would pull on and, and go and play for. So, I think obviously what, what I tried to key on there is obviously those two things. That Admiral went away and made, made the kit specially that to ship it out quickly to make sure the players and players were more comfortable. So that, that that was one that was one element. Going through the tournament. Having won that first game, it was important they, they they kept on and they did win the next two group games, which is unheard of for England World Cup. Yeah. Um, they might they might win win one game in a group, but very rarely win win two or three. That's right. Uh, just just remind us of who who we played in that group. Um, yeah, so obviously we had uh, France, which obviously did very well with the tournament. Um, we're unlucky probably not to get to the final, so we beat them three one in the first game. Um, then we played. Uh, Czechoslovakia uh, beat them 2-0 and in the last game uh, Kuwait 1-0 in a game which obviously yeah, we'd, we'd already qualified um, but have, you know, to, to win the group would have been obviously more, more beneficial for us 
Um, and it turned out it wasn't because we played uh, two stronger teams because they didn't win their groups. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> this this was a time when when World Cups were slightly different, wasn't it? Because we, we won that first group and then we went on to a, uh, that was a group of four, and then we went on to another group and a group of three, which is, yep. isn't the way things are now. It's not the way things are now. Um, it was the first time the World Cup had expanded uh, into 24 teams. And obviously that to um, sort of experiment and the way best best way to suit teams going through and how they would uh, do that as opposed to a straight knockout, which you find now. Um, and yeah, you had um, teams set up in groups of three, four, four groups of three with the winners progressing into the semi-finals. So the actual amount of games being played were roughly the same as you get now but just in a, in a different format. I see. Um, and, and we drew the short straw, really, didn't we? Getting two, two highly dominant teams in that second yeah. group. Yeah, and that was obviously because uh, Northern Ireland beat Spain in their, in, in their group, opening group, and that made Spain finish second, landed them up in, in, in our second round group. So where we should have had probably uh, Northern Ireland, we, we didn't. <laughs> So um, our two games, so we play West Germany and Spain. Yeah. Um, sh- shooting boots were obviously left in the uh, in the dressing room for these games, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, having hit the ground running um, against France, scoring three goals, um, then went to two and then one, and then drew a blank in, in, in the second round completely. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's hard to find the reason why, but the goals dried up. We didn't concede up after that opening game against France, so the defence and the goalkeeper were, were rock solid. Just just couldn't find the back of the net. And so, I mean, that was we played five games, five games in this tournament, won three, drew two, and lost none. And as you say, we we scored, we scored a lot. We scored six and only um, one against in that initial game against France. Yeah, um, that's that's unheard of for us to to win that many games or for any team in a World Cup and to win that many and still go out? To, to go out um, undefeated. We're not the first team to go out, um, having not lost the game. But um, it was certainly the first time we, we did it. And that's 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 what leaves everyone sort of like, you know, could we have done better in, actually in the, in, the, in the finals? And obviously the answer is yes, because obviously you want to go on and win it. But yeah. the fact that having done so well early on, we just couldn't continue in, in, in that vein. And obviously, yeah, t- teams do do get stronger as they progress in the tournaments. Uh, the first game against West Germany, we should have won. Got a bit lucky at the end when uh, Rimeniga hit, hit hit the post. But uh, it was a game we probably could have won. But it set us up in a good position because um, obviously we, we, you know, West Germany were, were the stronger out of the two two teams that we were playing against in that group. So... How how long did it take to to research this book and, and put it together? When did you when did you think right? I'm going to write a book on eighty two. Right, it's funny you say it because actually on on, on Facebook the other, the other day, I, what you, know, you get the, the Facebook memories of when you've posted up things in the past. Oh, and, yeah. uh, that flashed up as two years ago. Yesterday was when I first put the idea together um, and actually co- contacted a, a publisher and said, "This is what I want to write about. This is how I want to do it." And they were like, "Fine, we're, that's we're, you know that, that's absolutely brilliant because there there was no books about England in in the eighty two World Cup. Um, there's been obviously coverage in books about England in the World Cup, and obviously it passes yeah. on, but nothing in in real detail. So they they were happy for that. Um, so that that was two years ago. 
I think actually writing it took about 18 months, roughly. Um, I had a deadline, got make, made that easily, and then obviously was, was putting, the, putting the book together, finding the right, right um, pictures for the book. And then, yeah, it got launched in October of last year. So um, it, was, it was, yeah, about eight, 18 months in total, really. Okay, and has it been received well? What's the reaction to it? Um, it, it initial initial reaction was good. It had a few good, good, good reviews to start off with. Uh, obviously, with with uh, pitch publishing, they're they're the te- they're the team behind behind the book. They they sent everything out to magazines, um, other broadcast media. They all got their hands on it. Um, haven't had reviews from everyone that it was sent to, but from what I did get, it, it was it, it went down well. Great stuff. And if if someone wants to to purchase it and they, they haven't got it already, where where can we go? Pitch, pitch publishing is that the place to go, or is it in the shop? Pitch publishing. Um, got got. You'll be able to find it on the link there to to, to, to buy the book. Um, you can obviously go into any ma- major bookstore, um, and if they haven't got it in, obviously you can order it through them as well. Is this is this your first foray into writing, or have you got anything else on on this the go? Is- this is, the, this is the first book. This is the first book. Um, I've been writing diff- different subjects for about six, seven years now. Um, but this is the first book, yeah. Nice one. Oh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it, to be honest. I'm, I'm going get, to get through the end of it and, and see how it all ends. Okay. <laughs> um, so if, if people want to, to connect with you, Gary, if that's something you're open to. Uh, sure, yep. On Twitter is probably, probably the best and easiest way. Um, Gazdraw one, G A Z J O R one, so that's that's nice and easy. And do you are you are you still follow England on a regular basis? Are you are you going to the World Cup this year? Not going to the World Cup, no. Um, I, I, I think other commitments this year, and um, yes, still still uh, follow them all the time. I'm not actually going to the to the Italy game, but I might try and get to the uh, Nigeria game before they fly off. And what what are your thoughts on the the current England team? Could could you compare them to to 1982? There are some comparisons. I heard just the other day that Southgate still doesn't know who his number one goal goalkeeper is. So that's yeah. interesting because he's got four four in the squad. So we can have a good look at them over the next uh, week. Um, that was that was the same problem for Greenwood. He was always rotating Shilton and Clements, um, and in the end, uh, after they qualified, actually said that Shilton was his man and. Had to obviously break the news to Clements, and that was uh, quite hard. Um, but no, there are there are other comparisons. Obviously, you've got players uh, that are going to be first in the team sheet, but other ones that will be uh, disappointed they're not going to make the plane. Yeah, I mean the book goes so in depth towards the back that there is even a section that it says about the players, the players that um, that went. And that, that's it. It's it's called the nearly men, like you say. Um, I'm mean, talking about goalkeepers there, Gary Bailey of Manchester United and, and Alvin Martin, West Ham. Um, yeah, there was some some big players at the time that missed out. Steve Perriman missed out, who was obviously Spurs at the time. Um, and, and Syl Regis, um, who, yep. who didn't have the England career that perhaps he, uh, that perhaps he should have. Yep, yep. There's a few players. I mean, that, that, was, that was the... Uh, when, when you draft that initial squad up of 40, and I think obviously... They'll be doing something similar this time around. Um, so obviously having to leave leave eighteen behind, and that obviously gives a little cap capsule to those those players at the back of the book, as to uh, give them a nod. It's like you know that they 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 were around, they were pushing for places, but some of them did did obviously go on and, and make make future World Cups. 
Others just didn't play again after that at all for, for their country. Um, it just didn't didn't happen for them because obviously when you're changing over a manager, he comes in with his with his own set of ideas and his own own players that he has that obviously he's um, seen and worked with. So uh, they, they they were left behind. I see. Gary, thank you very much for joining us on the Free Lions podcast, and I uh, I wish you all the very best with the book. Thanks very much for having me. Bye. There we are then, another one done and dusted. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much to Gary Jordan. His book, Out of the Shadows, is out now. I'll uh, I'll put a link to it on our Twitter and Facebook pages, which incidentally is where you can find us for a chat. Just literally search Three Lions Podcast on either of those. And we're also on Spotify, we're also on iTunes. However you listen to your podcasts, please do leave us a review. Apparently, if you give us a five star and a thumbs up and a big high five and a clap, apparently that puts us higher up the rankings and the more people can find us. And I'll catch you next time. See ya. (laughs) 